1: You're
2: listening to the AME Radio Show. Welcome to the Ame Radio Show. I'm your host Jason Down, and we've got a great and packed show for you guys this week. The topics are so intense, we had to go into an extra long interview with each one of them. So that means there's going to be no there's going to be no commercials, music, or commentary, just interviews. Um, but we kind of had to because, like I said, it was very is very complex, and I wanted them to get in as much information as they could uh, so that way it will help you understand what they're talking about. First, though, is Robert Farrell. He is a author of a bunch of different books based upon biblical happenings. He's going to be talking to us about the birth of Jesus, the star of David, the uh, Noah's Ark, and the creation of the universe. Was it created with a big bang? We're going to find out with that and so much more in his interview. Uh, Then we're going to be going to Yol Swan. She's going to be talking to us about our soul and the gender of our soul. Um, Just because you're a man does not mean you have a masculine soul. You may have a feminine soul. And just because you're a female does not mean you have a feminine soul. You may have a masculine soul. She's going to tell us all about it and how to identify what type of soul you have, so you're going to want to listen to that all the way through. But before we go into our our interviews, go check out our website, www.theamemagazine.com. You'll be able to see what the Amy experiences is, which is our television show. It is our uh, magazine and our radio show. See all of it anytime you want. Our newest television show just posted with Red Calling. It's got the Gamble Plantation and the Clearwater Pier Sixty Sugar Sand Festival. So you're gonna want to see all of that. Uh, just go there right now. It's posted, and also listen to us every every week Saturday five o'clock at. AMFM two four seven. You can listen to us on iHeart on demand, and you can go kes- catch us on WKLAP every Friday at twelve o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's k l w k l a p and amfm two four seven dot All right, guys, let's get into the- our first interview. All right, everybody, I have on the line with me right now a guest. He's a very Educated guest. He's written a lot of amazing books. And uh, there's going to be a lot to talk about in just a short amount of time, so we're going to have to do this as best as we can. But his name is Robert Farrell. Welcome to the show, Robert. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing fine, thank you. How are you?
2: I'm doing fantastic. Now, you've written a book called The Science Behind Noah's Flood. Uh, gravitational field propulsion the key to interstellar interstellar travel and how the universe was created without a big bang those are some pretty intense books Uh, what kind of got you into this uh, field of of, uh, these types of um, these types of uh, theories and uh, education
0: well um, (laughs) I I think my interest in ufology led me into uh, this kind of research I actually started writing science fiction first. I have a series called the Alien Log Series and uh, that I began writing 10 years ago. And, and the research that I did, I did into that kind of led me in these various directions. Uh, as far as Noah's Flood, um, That I got into that as, as a result of reading some of Zechariah Sitchin's books, in particular The Twelfth Planet. And in fact, in my book, uh, Noah's Flood, I spend a whole chapter uh, going through what Zachariah Sitchin had uh, stated in his 12th Planet book back in 1976, and he was criticized back then because he didn't know what he was talking about, according to the experts. But anyway, I spend a whole chapter going through item by item. Showing how the past 40 years of science has proven that what he said was right. And one of the things that he claimed was or felt that was that the Noah's flood occurred 13,000 years ago as a result of melting ice in, in Antarctica as we came out of the ice age. <clears throat> so I followed up on that and that led to the book Noah's flood, the science behind Noah's flood. Um, so that's how I got into that book. Um, I have a book called uh, The Science Behind Alien Encounters which is nonfiction, and that was just um, my attempt to explain to the layperson, someone who probably wouldn't even really have much interest in UFOs because they had heard that they do these things that just can't be done, it's just magic. So I go through item by item of these various um, things that people see them do and explain using science that anyone probably who graduated from high school would have. Um, you know, I explain how they make 90-degree turns and and accelerate 100 Gs without uh, killing the occupants. And basically, that is um, because they use gravitational field propulsion. And that's what led me into that topic, the science behind gravitational field propulsion and key to interstellar travel. And um, my nonfiction books... Um, evolve out of uh, lectures that I develop. I have PowerPoint lectures; they're typically two hours long, <clears throat> and they are on those subjects. Now, the, the th- fourth, the third one—I mean, fourth one—the science behind creation of our universe without a Big Bang uh, was a result of my collaboration with a friend of mine who had a better hypothesis than the Big Bang hypothesis, and he and I more or less collaborated on that book. It's not finished yet, um, but it's in three parts. The first part is a history of astronomy, beginning with um, the beginning of astronomy, and stopping along the way at uh, places where either a person or technology caused a paradigm shift in our understanding of the universe. And, that, and then uh, part two is a, a explanation of the Big Bang Hypothesis in how it evolved, and the problems with it. Part three is the presentation of a better hypothesis for how the universe created without a Big Bang. So these things kind of evolved out of my interest primarily in uh, uh, UFOs or ufology.
2: Well, UFOs have always fascinated me because I've always wondered, do they exist, do they not exist? I know that we have probably enough information to say that they do, or it's at least probable that they do, but... Um, but it just—they also freak me out because of the fact that they're able to come down. They're able to do so much to you, and you don't know if some people said that they—they they have these chips inside of them. They don't even know how it got there. So you know, it's amazing that that, that there is a possibility of another light form out there that can come and interact with us.
0: Oh, well, that's true. Actually, uh, many years ago, and I don't remember how long ago—maybe thirty years ago—it um, was it just became obvious to me that there had to be other life in the universe just by sheer numbers of, of stars. And uh, in the past 30 years, we've learned that uh, there are just about, almost for every star, there's probably a planet, and there are a number of stars and planets that would be in habitable zones that could support life. And because our star, is, <clears throat> which is a typical star, is is only about halfway through its life, that would mean that there are a lot of stars that are maybe a billion years or two billion years older than our star and would have planets and life forms that could be millions of years more advanced than us and would have the technology to travel into space. We're on the verge of that ourselves. I mean, we already have gone into the space, but we're just put the chemical rockets. Um, once we uh, evolve this gravitational field propulsion, which is what UFOs use, uh, it opens the door to interstellar travel because we can accelerate at, uh, hundreds of G's, a G being like on Earth, you're, when you walk around on Earth, you're, you're exposed to one G. That's what holds you to the planet. So now imagine a hundred G's would make you weigh a hundred times as much. A thousand G's would make you weigh a thousand times as much. So, but if you could accelerate for, for an extended period of time at one hundred G's, you could get to the moon in 20 minutes. You could get to Mars in 12 hours and Jupiter in 18 hours. And then you could keep right on going and go outside our solar system. And what kicks in at at this point is because you're traveling at such high velocities now, you're approaching the speed of light. Um, There's this thing called time dilation. And so the people aboard the craft even though they may go out 40 light years distant. You know, we might say, hey, it took them 40 years, and there they are. We're looking, we're looking out there. We, we we can see them out there. And so we call them up, and we say, hey, congratulations. You've gone 40 light years away. And they say, 40 light years? Our calendar says you've only been gone a month. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. So they turn around, and they come back home. And so as far as they know, they've traveled two months. They get out of their craft, and guess what? The planet is 80 years in the future. They don't know anybody anymore. <laughs> so um, these are some of the things that you could do with you if you had gravitational field propulsion. Well, and you... by the way, uh, it is possible. And in my lecture and in the book, uh, the book isn't out yet either, but the lecture, lecture has been ongoing for a couple of years now. In the lecture, I start off by explaining how, in theory it is possible to create a gravitational field. Einstein showed that in his field equations, where he showed this, this like an equal sign separating on one side um electromagnetic fields and on the other gravitational fields. And this is what led him to believe that um, a beam of light from a star, which is electromagnetic energy, when it passes through the gravitational field of the sun, near the sun, that it would be bent because the gravitational field is interacting with the electromagnetic field. Well, and that was proven, by the way, but my feeling is, okay, well, why can't you do the opposite? Why can't you manipulate electromagnetic fields to create gravitational fields? And, in fact, you can. And um, there was a paper presented in 2011 by a Canadian where he did an experiment. He shined a laser beam past a mass that was suspended in a controlled environment and the mass moved toward the laser beam, the light beam. There was also a theoretical paper, actually it was a chapter in a book, written back in 1934 by Richard Tolman, um, where he goes through and derives and shows that a photon, or light, is twice as effective in producing a gravitational field as is a particle of matter. Mm -hmm.
2: That's interesting. You know, when I saw that, when, when you actually had had uh, contacted me just before, r- right after I saw this this uh, show on History Channel called uh, uh, the Devil's Graveyard, and it was very fascinating. I but I've hear I've heard a lot of people say it's complete, you know, junk, and I've heard people say it's very plausible. So I want to get your I want to get your take on it. But basically, what it is is you got the, you got these uh, Bermuda triangles, and there's little triangles all over the all over the world that have that are very radioactive. And weird things happen when you go in there. The compasses, you know, go all different directions, and people have become lost. And and sometimes it affects your brain. There are places in, I want to say, Algeria. I think that's one of the main places where the Nazis had gone. And animals won't live there for some unknown reason. And so when they did, when scientists went in there and did a uh, experiment, they found out that each one of these uh, areas have isotope twenty nine in it, which is very ra- very radioactive. But it also creates a magnetic field. And when supposedly they they, uh, excavated this thing because they're trying to take the the field and destroy the isotope 29 by reverse uh, uh, sound waves, that this could actually help our global warming because they're saying it's slowing it down. I don't know how much of that is true, but they're believing that these were created a long, long, long time ago by... Uh, alien life forms that use this to then travel across the across the Earth using interstellar travel. Is that plausible?
0: Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure what the question was. Uh, the, the aliens traveling across the Earth. You
2: yeah, using you, yeah. The, if, supposing these little these little Bermuda triangles and all these triangles across the world are filled with isotope twenty nine, but they're laid out in a grid form that just man could not create. And it seems like they're they're saying it's slowing down our Earth because it's creating like a reverse magnetic uh, pulse. But on the other hand, for anything else, it would create a positive force. So it basically, if you were an alien, you could literally take off over these spots, and it would it would force you to go faster and be able to like you know interstellar travel uh, and using uh, these uh, gravitational field propulsions. So I was trying to figure out what your take on that would be. Is this possible that these these spots like the the Bermuda triangle and the and uh all over you all over the world are you know potential uh launching pads for these uh for these um uh aliens to travel over and go faster
0: uh well, I'm not really familiar with that, but I guess my bottom line is I don't dismiss anything anymore <laughs> i mean. I might be a little skeptical from time to time, but I I find that when you look into it, there's something to it usually. But I really am not familiar with with the with that aspect of the uh, Bermuda triangles. Um, but you, you know, when I when I was in high school, which is a long time ago, they made statements like perpetual motion is impossible. You know, perpetual motion machines cannot happen. Well. Now, scientists are saying, well, it's possible there's a zero point energy source where you can get energy out of the universe, basically. Um, well, and, and basically, in fact, that supposedly is one of the ways UFOs propel themselves is they extract energy from this zero point field. Um, well, that sort of violates what I was, what I grew up to learn, but I have, I've had to discard that because you know, things change. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what you say. I can't say one way or another whether I think it would, it could happen. Um, anything's possible, um, just about. Except you can't go backwards in time. I, that, that, I think, is impossible. <laughs> and people will argue with me on that, but um, I, I just think because of the paradox, you're probably familiar with the paradox that I'm mm-hmm. thinking about. Um, because of the paradox, uh, I, I believe... You can't go back in time. You can go forward. I just explained a few minutes ago how you could travel ahead in time, you know, by zooming into space uh, and, and, and uh, going near the speed of light so that your clock is running at a different rate than the one on Earth. And when you return, uh, the Earth is moved ahead maybe, who knows, maybe a 100 years or so. But you can't go back. You can't say, oh, geez, I miss my friends. I want to go back. You can't. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the paradox that it would create.
2: And honestly, and my I...
0: argument, my argument to support that is, if anybody could create a machine to travel back in time, it would be the aliens because they've got all you know they some of them out there must have technology that's beyond imagination. So they probably could develop a machine that would go back in time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if they have and they're, let's say, visiting Earth, and they've got this machine to go back in time, then it would create a paradox. There would be a situation where um, maybe my father was looking out the window when a UFO went by, and that UFO um, somehow uh, changed time because they could go back in time. And all of a sudden, my father is, because the UFO went back in time at the time my father was looking out the window, and did something that caused him to perish, mm-hmm. and therefore I wouldn't. I wouldn't live. You know, think I couldn't be. Could, I would, my father didn't exist, so therefore I don't exist. That kind of thing.
1: Right.
0: So I really don't. That's why I think uh, there's no way to go back in time. So the, in fact, a lot of physicists say the, the the arrow of time only points in one direction.
2: Now I heard something similar to that: that, that you can't go back in time, but it is possible to see the past by going forward. Um, I guess it was the, the if you can travel faster than the speed of light and turn around, you can see that moment in time, but you can't actually interact with it. What do you think about something like that?
0: That makes sense. In fact, that ties into um, what you may call a paranormal experience of people uh, who can see their past lives, because I happen to believe in that. I believe in... Um, that when we die, you know, eventually we are um, reincarnated, let's say. We've had many lives, and people under hypnosis, as as you're aware, uh, have been able to go in and see and tap into their past lives. Now, they couldn't go back and interact with it, but they could see it. Mm -hmm. You know, they could see what they used to be, you know, in a 100 years ago or whatever. And so they could see into the past. Like you said, I believe that.
2: And that you know this stuff is so fascinating. I mean, just the the idea of being able to travel, you know, into the future and see your past, even if you can't touch it. I mean, honestly, you could travel to the past just by through your memories. But um, you know, it would be interesting to actually see it portray itself like a like a uh, a movie or something like that, just by traveling. I, that that just blows me away.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. The the people that have been regressed. Uh, as far as I know, you know, it was very real to them, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in fact, the thing that really is perplexing is when some of these people who have been regressed start having conversations with people in the past. That that kind of is strange, because that is interacting with the past.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I want to kind of get into the science of behind Noah's Flood. Um, are you... I, I'm really interested in this because I, I know a lot about the, uh, the Bible and the biblical times and stuff like that. Now, you're saying that, I think you said it happened about 13,000 years ago. Would that have been at the time of Noah, or is that just um, at the time of um, uh, where something happened in, in life and it just, it just happened and you're just calling it Noah's Flood?
0: Um, well, first of all, let me just say one thing. Uh, there have been a lot of flood stories. Uh, world flood stories uh, all around the world. Uh, Noah's flood story, in my opinion, um, was confined to the Mesopotamian uh, region, mm-hmm. and Noah Noah was basically a Sumerian, uh, an ancient Sumerian, mm-hmm. and he lived he lived according to my hypothesis, which I basically I, I can't take credit for all of it because I built upon uh, Zechariah the late Zechariah Sitchin's idea of, of this thing being the result of, of a mega tsunami created by, by ice sheet collapsing in Antarctica. So here's my scenario. 14,700 years ago, Noah and his family were living—they were Stone Age people, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were living happily in uh, southern Mesopotamia in what, what is, uh, was Sumeria and later became Sumeria again. Uh, probably, I don't know what town he lived in, but probably near Shurpak, which is just south of Baghdad. And, and I based that on some of the legends, like uh, the uh, Akhazes legend and the Epic of Gilmesh uh, legend and uh, and also the Old Testament, the flood story, Noah's flood story. They're all the same story. They evolved, and, and they have a little different uh, take on them, but basically, um, they when you look at them, it's the same story. The oldest one is is a story of uh, Zussandra, and not much, not many pieces of the tablet are, are left of that. So it's 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 a little um, unclear exactly. Other than the fact that Zussandra was a king in Sherpak before the flood, before the flood, um, after Jesus, is a story that, that came after them. Now, these stories are carved in clay, okay? Mm-hmm. And they weren't carved until after people learned how to write, which was about 6,000 years ago. So they're actually uh, writing down stories that had been carried down over thousands of years through oral tradition. And then finally, people learn how to write, and they write it down in clay. <laughs> and so, so these, these stories, which we're talking about, are written in clay, about uh, oh I don't know four four thousand years ago perhaps four or five thousand um, and people have gotten these stories and pieced them together one is Zusandra, then fo- the one that follows that is uh, Atahasis and the one that follows that is the epic of Gilgamesh and the one that follows that is the story in the Old Testament. And uh, so these, the time from the, when the first one was written down until when the, the uh, Genesis was written is two or 3,000 years. Um, so the stories basically are oral traditions. So they didn't, the flood did not occur at the time they were written. The flood occurred thousands of years before they were written. And in my hypothesis, in fact... Noah was living happily in southern um, Mesopotamia in Sumeria. I don't know what his profession was, but he was a hunter-gatherer. They would basically go out and hunt food or gather berries and whatever. Um, They worshipped at that time um, a pantheon of gods, 12 gods, who who they thought actually came from another planet. And... um, the, at, at that time, 14,700 years ago, sea level was 170 feet below what it is now.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, the Persian Gulf was actually a lake, so it was smaller, and it's, it's shallow. If you look at the uh, the soundings of the Persian Gulf, it, it's very shallow, 50 to maybe 150 feet deep. And so the Indian Ocean was 370 feet below that. And this so it was a lake that, that flowed down into the Indian Ocean. It was fed by four rivers, by the way, exactly as the Bible said. and um, so Noah would have been living in uh, north of what is uh, the Persian Gulf. It would have been probably marshland, and uh, who knows what he did, but he was um, warned by one of the gods. He wasn't supposed to have been warned, but he was warned that this flood was coming. And uh, he was told to build this boat. And uh, sure enough, uh, the flood came. He and his family, who were in this boat, were carried north, northwest along the Tigris and Euphrates valley, and came aground up in an area, ironically, about where the capital of ISIS is. In, in my scenario, then, Noah would have wandered further north to higher ground and gone into what today is known as the Plain of Haran and would have settled in the northwest corner in a town, which is one of the oldest towns, called San Lurfa. Now, if you go to San Lurfa today and you, you get a tour, they will tell you that Abraham was born there, okay? okay. And I believe that. Uh, Sir Leonard Woolley, who back in the early Uh, in 1928, I think it was, he wrote a book about the dig that he did in Ur. Ur is down in the southern part of of, uh, Samaria, uh, close to the northern edge of the Persian Gulf. And Woolley went down there to dig. And and he's the one that actually proved that Noah's Flood was for real. Because before he discovered, uh, made his discovery... People thought that Noah's flood was simply a myth, just a story. Well, he show, he did, in his dig, he found out that there had been a flood, a, a tremendous flood, in uh, in Ur, where he was digging, and perhaps even further in other areas. And he described the flood as being perhaps 100 miles wide and going 400 miles up into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. <laughs> um, so... He's the one that really got us all thinking that this is for real. And a lot of people have been proving that. So anyway, back to the story. So Noah and his family um, end up going into this uh, area of uh, the plain of Haran, settle in there. And um, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And eventually they left that area. Ham migrated into what is Can- Canaan and further south into Africa, and Japheth migrated both his his family has uh, migrated in both directions, east and west, going into um, like where uh, Greece is today, and also over into Iran um, in those two directions. And Shem went south into Saudi Arabia. That's according to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, later on, we have Abraham appear. Sir Leonard Woolley thought Abraham was born in Ur, which is down in the south. And that's what I believed, too, when I first started writing the book. But then the the story talks about um, Abraham migrating into Canaan when he was 75 years old. The Lord spoke to him and told him to go to Canaan. And he took Lot with him. Well, Lot was the son of, of Abraham's brother, younger brother. So I plotted that, and I said, well, it doesn't make sense because it shows that uh, Lot's, uh, Abraham's father, Terah, took them up into the plain of Haran. And why, you know, when you look at it on a map, it doesn't make sense. Why would they divert up there? Well, that's when I started thinking, well, maybe maybe they're, the people up in San Lurfa are correct that Abraham actually was, was born up in that area and his father, Tara then decided, okay, we're going to migrate into, uh, Canaan, which would be going down, going South through the plain of Haran and then heading, uh, East over into Canaan. Why, they, why they were going to do that? I don't know other than the fact that maybe by that time, because we're not talking, uh, uh, hundreds of years later, by that time, maybe Ham and his descendants had discovered that fishing is nice, you know, you got the uh, Mediterranean and everything, and uh, life is good. And maybe that's why um, Terah, Abraham's father, was going to take the whole family and go to Canaan. Well, it seems like on their way, they got halfway through the plain of Haran, and Haran, who was Abraham's Younger brother by I think thirty five years died. Well, Terah decided to stay right there. He wasn't going to go any further, and he lived out his life there in Haran, which is in the plain of Haran. And so did Abraham stay there until he was seventy five, and then he took Haran's brother, I mean uh, son, Lot, and went on to to go into um, Canaan. So that that all fits with the Bible, and it makes sense. The other thing that makes sense is I found a map that plots the um, the territory that was basically settled by Ham's people mm-hmm. and, and also the territory by Sham and the territory by Japheth, and they were colored, and they colored them different colors. And they intersected one location, and that location is, is at a point right now where it's called Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli so Tempe is a recent, by recent I mean in the last 20 years, a recent dig where they have discovered the oldest temple on the planet. It overlooks the plain of Haran. It's dated. Now, they've, they, it's, it's a series of circles, stone circles, that are, are um, religious centers. And they've uncovered th- four of them so far. And using ground-penetrating radar, they know there are 16 more underneath. Well, the ones on the top surface have been dated to be 12,000 years old, and the lead archaeologist says he thinks the ones further down may be as old as 14,000 years old. So I visualized then that Noah, with their background, the religious background, eventually the family grew, and uh, they began building these temples you know, became a religious site. So Gobekli Tempe is the oldest one, but there are two others, two or three others, not too far away, that are a little younger, that are also uh, temples. And when I say temple, it's really <clears throat> a circle of rocks with some stone columns erected. And in the middle of this circle are two tall stone columns, T-shaped, that are like 20 feet high and weigh, weigh several tons. And... um so you have, like, two main columns in the middle, and then about ten columns around it. Now, <clears throat> this fits with the um, Sumerian belief of twelve gods, the pantheon of gods, and uh, the interesting thing that I've discovered recently <clears throat> is that these two center columns face toward the south, generally toward the south, um, and according to Zachariah Sitchin, when he, he did some research into the culture of the Sumerians and their religious beliefs, uh, they believe that um, these uh, Anunnakis, which we would call aliens, came from a planet called Nibiru, which orbited around the sun every 3,600 years. And by the way, a lot of the um, events that are in the Sumerian calendar are in, in groups of 3,600 years. The pantheon of uh, gods, if you will, uh, generally are spaced about in, in, in increments of 3,600 years, and the, the length of their, their servitude was in increments of 3,600 years. So, and this planet Nibiru, according to Sitchin, who had done some research, approached from the south. Its orbit was uh, tilted away from the ecliptic of, of all the other planets, In in our solar system. Um, and he, I think he said 30 degrees. I'm doing some calculations now. I don't think it was quite that far, maybe 15 degrees. But it, but that orbit was not in playing with the, the, all the other planets that were native planets because Nibiru was a captured planet. It, it, it was what we call a rogue planet. Mm -hmm. And, and for, for the Zachary decision to even talk about a rogue planet in 1976. Before we even knew of any, you know, it's kind of astounding. So, give his credence to what he what he said in in the, his book. But anyway, so Nibiru comes around every three thousand six hundred years, and it comes from the south. If you're looking for it when it comes inside the orbit of Jupiter, it probably becomes visible. Uh, it would come up from the evening sky on the south and travel across. And this may be why oriented the two large columns to face south. The two large columns represented the two main gods in the Sumerian religion. Um, So anyway, back to the Bible, the the, the nations, I guess you might say, of Ham, Japheth, and Shem intersect at this location. Another interesting point is, as I said 14,000 years ago, these people were hunter-gatherers uh, and, and according to Herr Schmidt, the, archa- the archaeologist, he says 14,000 years ago, that region would have been, have abundant uh, life for them. You know, a lot of, it was lush, a lot of animals, so it'd been perfect for hunter-gatherers to live. Um, eventually, though, these hunter-gatherers learned how to, uh, you know, grow plants of their own, wheat in particular, and uh, how to herd animals. And so we, agriculture was born mm-hmm. approximately 12,000 years ago, according to some experts. And guess where it began? If you look at a map where all these scientists are saying this is where it started, right there, go back Lake Tepe. So it all fits.
2: Wow, that's awesome.
0: It is. Okay. Well, eventually these people who, who built the temple 8,000 years ago, um they built the temple 14,000 years ago, maybe, and the top ones maybe 12,000 years ago. But 8,000 years ago, they buried them deliberately. They were buried. <laughs> and one has, well, why would they do that? And they, they don't know why. But I know, according to the migration of the people from that region, um, they, they seem to stay away from going back down into the valley where the Tigris and Euphrates, and the Euphrates River ran. And, uh, and they really didn't return to Sumeria until about 8,000 years ago. <clears throat> and so why was that? Why did they stay away for 4,000 years? Well, I have in my book a graph of the sea level that uh, shows that it's it starts low, as I mentioned, 370 feet below present sea level. <clears throat> And then uh, 14,700 years ago, it suddenly makes a 100-foot jump, <clears throat> and that's where the first flood occurred. But it continues to make, uh, every, every so many thousand years, it jumps again, and it's kind of stair steps up to our present value. So I could visualize that each one of those stair steps was another tsunami, mega tsunami coming out of Antarctica, and people knew that it was unstable. In those lower levels, and that's why they avoided it until finally, about eight or nine thousand years ago, it stabilized near where the sea level is today, and they returned to that region. Uh, you know what, the river that's coming down there it would have been a very lush region eventually, and uh, a place where you could thrive. And so they finally did return there, and so probably what happened is when they returned there, they buried the temples that they had built before. To build a new temples when they return to the valley.
2: Well, that's very interesting. Unfortunately, though, we are running out of time. I got about four to five minutes left uh, before I have to go to a break. Um, tell everybody where they can find your books.
0: Well, um, on Amazon, all my books uh, except for some of the latest ones, which the paper books haven't gotten there. Uh, I have five books now that are available as eBooks. Um. And uh, later this year, the six of them will join. But the five that are available on Amazon as eBooks and paper books, um, the, the three science fiction books, the first one being Alien Log, and then the second was Alien Log 2. The third, of course, is Alien Log 3. Those three are uh, available um, as e-books. The first two of which are available as paper books. The third one, not yet. Then the two Science Behind series, the science behind alien encounters and the science behind Noah's Flood are also available as ebooks on Amazon or Barnes and Noble, by the way. Almost any place that has ebooks. So all I can say is all five of them are available as ebooks right now. And eventually all, all of them will be available as paper books. Uh, the other thing they could do is if they went to um, info at alien log and indicated that they wanted to have paper books for the ones that aren't listed. In Amazon or carried by them, uh, i can I can I have some in my inventory that I can send them, and I will tell them how to get them.
2: Well, thank you so much for coming on. I have I want to hear so much more about all this stuff. It's fascinating, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up other times where we could talk a little bit more about some of these things, go into more detail over time, and it'll give all of our listeners something to look forward to as well.
0: Sure, that's fine.
2: All right. Well, thank you for coming on the show, and we I will uh, schedule some more times for where we could talk more. And until then, guys, we are going to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be hearing a little bit more music and commentary, so stay tuned.
1: Hey, this is Jen Lilly from Days of Our Lives, and you're listening to AME Radio Show.
2: All right, everybody. I have on the line with me Yoel Swan. She is a spiritual counselor Author of the Indigo Journals, and we're going to be talking to her about something that I see. I found very in- interesting called the Feminine Soul. Welcome to the show, y'all. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me.
2: You're welcome. So, what kind of got you into being a spiritual counselor? Well,
1: I've always had the ability to see life as energy, and you know, see things that other people <laughs> don't uh, necessarily see with uh, my spiritual senses more than the physical senses, and so it's been a, a lifelong journey of embracing that and, and helping others with those gifts, with those abilities. Now, when I got
2: your when I got your, your information, I saw something very interesting about the feminine soul. What is a feminine soul?
1: Well, a um, soul is really a spark of consciousness uh, that either tends towards the feminine qualities of consciousness or the masculine qualities of consciousness. So uh, masculine qualities of consciousness are, are more active, more action-oriented, you know, like discrimination and judgment. Um, and more feminine qualities are well, compassion, uh, empathy. And so my exploration of the soul, you know, and the mind and the psyche led me to see this feminine, masculine soul spectrum and how, you know, different soul types have different functions in in creation and in this, this, this world. Just like ourselves, you know, even though we, we think of them as just the cell. They have specific functions and, you know, they work in, in, they work together as a whole, but they each have very specific functions. And so, uh, in, in the discovery of this, the soul spectrum, I realized how certain souls are wired, so to speak, to, to tend towards those qualities, those feminine qualities, and certain souls are wired to tend, uh, towards the the more masculine. And since the world has become so overly masculine, so action-oriented and so physically oriented, uh, there's a need to balance things out, you know, because that means that the, the feminine has been wounded for a long time. And so all feminine souls are really awakening right now to that calling and asking themselves, so, what am I supposed to do here? What's my purpose? You know, what, um, why is the world the way it is? What can I do to, to change, to, to help, to transform things? And um, a feminine soul is also a very creative soul. You know, the, another quality of the feminine is to be creative. to talk nature. It's a very, very feminine force, um, And so... We are awakening to this calling to utilize those creative uh, uh, abilities, that uh, creative power to transform things.
2: I hope that answers your question. <laughs> oh, it does. Uh, one of the things that I have to question about... I know, it's it about...
1: complex. Like, it's multi-layered. And it's hard for me to pick, you know, just on us. That's why I wrote a book.
2: <laughs> no, I understand that perfectly. Um, but I do have a <laughs> question. Do uh, does an individual have the ability to to contain both masculine and feminine souls, and can it, like, adjust itself upon the nature of when it's needed, like a yin-yang type of thing, or is it you were born with a masculine or feminine soul?
1: Well, uh, the soul itself is either predominantly masculine or predominantly feminine, but it's composed of uh, different layers of energy that are both feminine and masculine. So we each have feminine and masculine qualities, but at the core of, of our soul, we're going to have a predominant tendency towards one or the other. And uh, so there, there are souls that are always going to be more active, more action-oriented, and, and, and souls that are going to be more receptive, you know, like feminine souls. But that doesn't mean that we have to just be passive. Uh, it, it really means that we have to integrate both. You know, the feminine needs to learn from the masculine and the masculine needs to learn from the feminine and integrate those because, uh, the, the level of consciousness that we want to attain ultimately is that perfect balance of feminine and masculine that we call enlightenment or liberation you know or, or the attainment of of a, of a much higher uh, consciousness but the soul itself has different layers of energy that are feminine and masculine let me let me explain um, the mind has very masculine qualities the emotional layers you know very feminine quality we feel things we are sensitive Uh, the the physical body has both masculine and feminine you know actions uh, are performed through are of the, the the you know the um, the functions in the, in the organism that are that have that are uh, lean towards action so like you know your muscles and you know the, the, the bones and the things that make your your, your body move and, and take action Those are feminine, and there are other aspects that are more receptive, like your senses. You know, you hear, you see, um, you eat, the joints, you know, things that help you, help that movement, but don't uh, don't move themselves. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does, actually.
1: Um, So so we have both the the senses that are receptive and uh, all the other functions and uh, and the aspects of the body that are, that, are, that allow us to take action to do things, to accomplish things in the, in the physical realm. So both the, the mental, you know, which is mental, emotional, physical, masculine, I mean masculine, feminine, the body also masculine, feminine, uh, and on a deeper level, the spiritual layer of the soul has also masculine, feminine. The feminine is, is the spiritual senses that perceive was not necessarily tangible and uh and the masculine are the qualities that allow us to discriminate between the truth and you know, what's true, what's false, what may lead us towards uh, uh spiritual growth and what separates us from from consciousness, you know. Now does the soul... so we, Go ahead. We have all of those. We just need to find the balance between those. That's what life is really all about: balancing that Yin and Yang.
2: Does the soul actually uh, make up how our personalities are, how we act, how we are perceived by other people, uh, stuff like that, or just basically working on the brain function and and um, making us kind of who we are internally?
1: Uh the soul is. Because it's a divine spark of consciousness, it's complex and it's infinite. So we go through a you know, an individual journey because we're individual souls. Uh, and so we reincarnate, reincarnate we and reincarnate many, many times. We go through many, many different experiences and roles and sometimes we are You know, poor, sometimes we're rich, sometimes we're powerful, sometimes we're powerless, and we kind of carry along with us all those experiences as impressions. You know, I call those impressions uh, vibrational seeds because they remain, I mean, there's like billions of those, you know, but they remain in potential form within each of us. And at each incarnation, the soul not us, uh, not the ego, not the conscious mind, uh, but the soul chooses which of those uh, potential seeds are going to be activated for us to learn and to grow and to continue our evolution. So when we come to, you know, body, when we come into physical reality, we already carry a lot of information from our past experiences and uh, have already developed certain tendencies. And we interact with others and are continuously awakening and triggering those tendencies in each other. Does that make sense? So we don't have a, like a set personality. We're always growing, changing, and, and, and being receptive to what goes on on the outside, but we also carry stuff. That uh, you know comes from our own past. Yeah, it does We're very, very complex, (laughs) multi-layered beings. That's why life is, you know, challenging and interacting in the world is also challenging.
2: So, how do we know what type of soul we have? Uh, Is it just by? How can we identify this?
1: Well, um, I a little bit of the the, uh, a little bit more in detail what the soul spectrum is like with different soul archetypes. But basically it's what you recognize in yourself uh, from when when you were a very young child. Because as we grow up, we absorb stuff from the environment, we uh, learn behaviors and we kind of Start creating this belief system that we have to be a certain way and we have to function a certain way, and so on. And so we create a lot of personas or self-images to fit in the world and to uh, to function. But at the you know at, at the core of all that, you know, like at the deeper level of that, we know whether we are uh, have the tendency to be more action oriented or less, you know, more passive more receptive, whether we are more compassionate, sensitive and empathic, or no, we are more scientifically minded or, you know, more rational, more logical. And so that kind of gives you an idea of where you stand uh, within the spectrum. And um, actually, the book offers a variety of archetypes, to kind of place yourself in the, within the spectrum and also uh, a self-assessment questionnaire that, uh, that helps with that as well. You know, like a bonus link uh, to do that. But basically it's how, how can you uh, recognize yourself leaning more towards that logical, rational, masculine perception or receptive empathic and sensitive of the feminine.
2: And that has no difference on gender, right? It's just a matter of the way that it's a a way of thinking?
1: Yeah, it's it's more of a a way of perceiving. Mm -hmm. And no, it has nothing to do with gender because there are women who are very masculine, both, and men who are feminine, both, they're more receptive and creative and empathic. Hmm.
2: Interesting. Well, we got about five minutes left, so let's talk about your book. Uh, what is uh, Your book is called Spiritual Counselor. Uh, what is the book about, and I, obviously it has to do with the indigo soul. Um, what is? Uh, give us a little insight into it.
1: Well, the book is the Indigo Journals, uh, Spiritual Healing for Indigo Adults and Other Feminine Souls. And it came about because after many years of self-exploration, it's psychotherapy and on the spiritual path, I realized that I was an indigo adult and what that meant and, and why I felt so out of place and different in the world. And I also started noticing that some of my clients were indigos and others were very close to the indigo archetype, but not quite. They were lacking very, uh, you know, important features. And so that led me to the exploration of the feminine soul and to recognizing that, I mean, how wounded the feminine is on the planet and how it needs to be healed and restored to find balance, you know, because the world is really um, has become very destructive. <laughs> and so uh, I was just kind of prompted to write this book, write my experience, the part of the book, is, is sharing my journey, my journey of discovery. And then, um, and also what it means to be indigo. What is an indigo archetype? What is a feminine soul? Uh, why do we need healing? Where, what are we doing here? What, why are we here now? What, what's coming up? Um, because we're, we're heading towards many planetary changes. So, what can we do? How can we contribute to, to make a better world? from the spiritual perspective um, of embracing who we really are and the gifts that we have to offer to transform things. So basically transforming the world through our own transformation by embracing who we are. We're different. We have a specific perception. We have gifts that we are here to share. How can we do that? And so the the end of the book is, is about Discovering your purpose and how to put that into practice, you know, into into practical terms in the world, so you can feel more connected, more empowered, and also uh, make a significant contribution.
2: Does the book kind of help people that are reading it identify if they have a masculine or feminine soul, if they're an indigo, or if they are an indigo?
1: Yes. That's part of the purpose because I know that there are so many Indigos out there that don't know they're Indigos and they just feel disconnected and uh, flawed, you know, different, uh, out of place. And so I have many uh, many people contact me or email me asking, where do I find my peers? You know, because I fit all those teachers, but where are they? <laughs> and so uh, the 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 main purpose of the book is to help them embrace those features and also uh, share with other feminine souls that the integral archetype is the their path towards self-empowerment because in this excessively masculine world, we need to take what's masculine and balance our feminine uh, qualities with it to contribute something. So it, it's a way of Taking action to share the feminine, to share the receptive, to share uh, the empathic and compassionate uh, energies that the world is very much made of. I've so been... basically, I'm sorry. I was
2: going to say I, I know what a balance is. I've been I've been preaching balance in the world for a long time because uh, too much of a good thing would be bad, and too much of a uh, of a bad thing is bad. So. You're saying that, basically, the book is saying that you have to have, too much of a feminine soul is not good, too much of a masculine soul is not good, it has to balance.
1: Exactly, exactly. But for feminine souls, in an excessively masculine world, it's, it's challenging to find balance because uh, we feel very disconnected, we feel like the world is is uh, pulling us in one direction when our inner wiring, our qualities tend to go in the opposite direction. And that's why so many people have anxiety, depression, all sorts of things because they feel like, you know, they're in short circuit, so to speak, uh, energetically speaking. And so how to find that balance uh, requires, you know, a path, a process of healing where we integrate those aspects and we develop the aspects that we are missing, Mm -hmm. like self-discipline and creative focus. You know, we're very creative, but we lack the discipline and the focus to bring that into reality. The masculine is more disciplined, uh, but it lacks the other aspect, which is to be more receptive and sensitive uh, and, and empathic. So... It's in that process of integration that we connect to who we truly are, you know, our true sense of self, uh, our soul, and also transform the world.
2: Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Well, we got about a minute and a half left, so how can people find your books and read more about it and also contact you in case they have questions?
1: Well, uh, they can learn more about it at indigojournal.com um they can contact me either through that site or my uh main business site which is soulguidedcoach.com and uh and the book is available on Amazon both in print and as a new book
2: all right well thank you so much for coming on and sharing this i've learned a lot it's quite it's uh, it's uh fascinating actually um, I wish you all the best, and I hope people will go out there and check out this book and find out a little bit more about themselves.
1: Yes, yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate the opportunity, and, uh, and I hope uh, all of you guys learn and learn and, and read the book and learn from it. If you have any questions, just, you know, look me up. I'm, I'm very open to answering any questions about the book, the Indigo, anything.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, guys, we're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be hearing more music, interviews and commentary. So stay tuned. That's
1: the end. We're done. Calm down, people. Calm down. Okay, that's it.